Welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall, and this is our second episode in our special series looking at adult congenital heart disease with Sam Fitzsimmons, consultant in adult congenital heart disease at Southampton Hospital, University Hospital Southampton. In our first episode, we covered in great depth a general approach and also those patients with the Fontan circulation. We talked about all the different presentations that may come to us in the emergency department, whether in a tertiary centre or a DGH. And if you haven't listened to it already, I would strongly recommend that you go back and listen to that episode first before you listen on now, because many of the basics that we covered in that will be important to us now. So Sam, we've covered that Fontan in episode one that those patients with a univentricular system we've got a bit used to talking about systemic ventricles rather than left and right we've got in our head how these patients may present it's time to move on to another condition which i know you have a particular interest in which is eisenmenger syndrome can you just give us an introduction to what eisenmenger syndrome is how it's different to the fontan and what we might see when they come into the emergency department. I run a pulmonary hypertension clinic and Eisenmenger syndrome is one of my passions. So here we go. Eisenmenger syndrome, what is it? Again, as we've spoken about the Fontan, it's a term, an umbrella term that describes a physiology. What do you have to have to have Eisenmenger syndrome? You have to have an shunt that is still open between your systemic and pulmonary circulations. You have to have had a shunt that will have been from a high pressure systemic circulation over your life into the pulmonary circulation that has led to you developing severe pulmonary vascular disease, so pulmonary hypertension, that then results in a bidirectional shunt. So you are able to shunt right to left through an open communication between your systemic and pulmonary circulations that will cause you to become cyanosed. Lots of people think of this as a diagnosis. It is a diagnosis, but the underlying congenital heart disease will differ. Examples of shunts are quite simply communications, so a ventricular septal defect unrepaired, an atrial septal defect unrepaired, a patent ductus arteriosus unrepaired. So these are the the common lesions. So when do these patients present, Sam? Is this something that's picked up at birth or even prenatally, or are they presenting later with these problems? How do they end up being unrepaired? It's quite a combination. So we've moved massively in paediatric surgery, as we've discussed previously, and there may have been some lesions whereby we thought due to other comorbidities or genetic abnormalities that patients may not survive into adulthood. And therefore, some 40 or 50 years ago, maybe 60 years ago, these patients were repaired. An example of that might be an atrioventricular septal defect, which is a big hole between the atrium and the ventricles, which allows a lot of mixing from systemic to pulmonary circulations. In certain groups of patients that were thought due to genetic reasons not to be able to survive to adulthood, they weren't repaired. However, now in 2021, we know that's not true. And now patients are being repaired. A lot was to do with not understanding some of the prognosis of patients. Others might have been coming from different countries whereby congenital heart disease may not have been quite such a subspecialty there. Patients may not have presented. They might not have been picked up. So lots of different areas whereby it hasn't been detected or it was felt that it was detected too late and the lung pressures were too high to allow the shunt to be closed safely. So we're probably considering 
patients who could be older than the population we talked about in episode one, because obviously the Fontan procedure hasn't been around as long, whereas here we could have patients in their 40s, 50s, maybe even older. My patient group, I, I would accept patients from adult age. They come over from paediatrics. A lot may have the diagnosis already through paediatric care, and I'll inherit them and follow on their care from 18 years and right the way up. And I have some patients in their sixth decade, so 60 and 70 from there. By physiology, again, the Eisenmenger groups still have an open communication between the two circulations. And over time, they equalize, particularly when you have a, now this is when we get into a little bit of physiology, a ventricular septal defect or PDA. These groups of patients do better because the systemic and pulmonary circulation can equalize. And so the right ventricle is never put under suprasystemic pressure. If you have an atrial septal defect, they do slightly worse because the ventricle is a closed system with a competent tricuspid valve and the ventricle dilates earlier and fails earlier. But I do, I have patients with ventricular septal defects that are still open that are developed pulmonary hypertension and therefore Eisenmenger physiology aged 60 to 70. So we're in the recess room, we get the pre-alert, we've got a patient coming in with that heart disease as yet unknown and when they arrive their relative or they say oh they've got Eisenmenger syndrome we've got an understanding now that this is really a mixing of oxygenated and unoxygenated blood in these shunts in different parts of the heart what are the problems that these patients may get that end up with them turning up in our emergency departments? I think probably the biggest difficulty in this group is anything that is going to affect their pulmonary circulation. So for me, even the smallest of chest infections, pulmonary emboli, anything that's going to cause their saturations to reduce, this group of patients should be able to spot in the ED because they've got chronic cyanosis. So they will have the skin that looks very blue, purpley tinge, central and peripheral cyanosis. They will be extensively clubbed. These haven't been repaired, so they're unlikely to have surgical scars, but you will be able to spot them a mile off. They will be cyanosed. But again, as we've said previously, you would anticipate they'd have a normal respiratory rate if well. So if you start with your ABCs and their respiratory rate is 30, there is something abnormal going on in this patient. Before you even look at their normal saturation range, we do have patients that desaturate down to the 60s on exercise, but at rest, if they have a respiratory rate that's elevated and for you, you feel that they're grossly cyanosed, please reach for the oxygen because they may have a reversible cause for that worsening cyanosis. And as we said in episode one, oxygen is our friend. We're allowed to give it. There is no ban on oxygen in patients with congenital heart disease. So if they have that increased respiratory rate, which I think is a really underrated physical sign, actually, still, if that's increased and they tell you they feel short of breath, there is something wrong. And that's likely to be something wrong on the pulmonary aspect, if you like. And we should focus our thoughts then on things like chest infections, pulmonary emboli and other lung type conditions? I think the biggest take home message also is that remember we have two circulations that are mixing. When you see the patient and if you've delivered oxygen at that point and you're getting venous access, just be mindful that anything in the venous system will move over into the systemic circulation. A cannula we all put cannulas in day to day with a lot of thought and a lot of aseptic technique. But in this group, you're allowing direct access of anything that goes through that cannula into the systemic circulation. So paradoxical emboli 
is high in this group. We in Southampton and many other tertiary centres use air filters on the back of any peripheral cannula to reduce the risk of paradoxical emboli in this patient group, causing detrimental effects with um, cerebral emboli. Forgive me being a a bit uh, naive here. Describe to me what a paradoxical emboli is. Absolutely. So the paradox is it's coming from the venous circulation and moving across into the systemic circulation. For example, flushing a cannula and maybe not being quite so astute with your air bubbles, you could send air embolus across into the systemic circulation through the right ventricle into the left through a ventricular septal defect and then out into the arterial system and up to the cerebral circulation. So it's anything that comes from the venous side over to the systemic circulation, which in a structurally normal heart without this physiology may have just been filtered out in the lung bed and no one would have realised. So they're really lacking that extra filter that we would have in a normal circulation. So we've got to be extra careful. Does that lead to other things that can present as well? So you know, if a patient presents confused with Eisenmenger syndrome, is there something else that they may be... Uh maybe suffering from that wouldn't be if you like normal. That's another thing we'd be careful with in this group. They are a high risk of having cerebral abscess. And that comes from, again, quite simply, a bacteremia that could occur within the venous system that we would normally have the ability in a physiologically normal patient to filter out. This doesn't, a bacteremia that gets into the systemic circulation or seeding of bacteria from an infected source. So infected cannula, you know, anything that's infected on the venous side can seed to the cerebral circulation. Quite simply, any change in neurology as simple as a relative or spouse reporting a change in a person's emotional response, affect. It doesn't have to be a hemiparesis. It doesn't have to be that extreme. And we've had a number of patients present to us very early, thankfully, because the spouse has picked up a change in that patient's behaviour and they've been identified on enhanced CT of the brain to show a ring-enhancing lesion that came from a very simple infection, whether it be an ingrowing toenail or, again, like we said, a pneumonia it can make its way up to the cerebral circulation and form an abscess. So the patient comes into the emergency department, they're unwell, we have to listen to the patient if they're able to talk to us, we have to listen to the relatives and take them seriously. These are not patients who choose to come to the A&E department, are they? They they try and stay away if at all possible, I would imagine, as I guess most people do. They come in and we need to do the simple stuff well, but think very carefully about these subtle presentations, which could be extreme conditions in the end. So a little bit of confusion, a little bit of shortness of breath, a slight increase in respiratory rate could all be heralding factors for something really bad happening. And that's all because of this unrestricted connection between the right and left sides or pulmonary and systemic sides of the circulation. Is that a fair enough summary? And if something's not quite right, don't be afraid of your inflammatory markers because in a normalised and menga patient that's doing well and functioning well, when I do their bloods in clinic, they're normal. They don't have raised inflammatory markers. So again, use your normal parameters in this group for your inflammatory markers. The abnormal markers in this group is the haemoglobin. The haemoglobin has 
a protective or a compensatory secondary erythrocytosis. We used to venesect them to try and normalize them and realized actually that's the wrong thing to do. We make them profoundly iron deficient and actually they become more prothrombotic because they're becoming hypovolemic with the venesection and more risk of intravascular clotting. So if you see a normal hemoglobin in somebody with saturations under 85% on air, then that is anemia. They may have bled or they may be profoundly iron deficient. In my Eisenmenger population, this group of patients have hemoglobins well within, you know, the 200 grams per litre. Do these patients get anticoagulated? Great question. So there's quite a lot of variation in this. Because they're under high pressure, the pulmonary vasculature, they're an, a very fragile balance between bleeding through high pressure vessels as well as clotting through the secondary erythrocytosis. Actually, in these group of patients, we tend to anticoagulate those that we've seen clot. Those that we haven't, we haven't formally anticoagulated. Great. So I think I'm a bit more with it now on Eisenmenger. Again, it's a syndrome that can be led to by lots of different previous lesions, but all of which involve shunting and mixing of oxygenated and deoxygenated blood and can cause the other different presentations within our population but the ABCs are key early antibiotics if there's any signs of infection and as we said with the Fontan population and throughout all of this contact their local centre if you're not there already, and they will be very happy to give you advice. This group of patients are extremely fragile. And I, again, as we've said, if they report being unwell, take them seriously. Your normal ABCs, there will be a number of medication that you may not be used to seeing in this setting. Now, these patients are on pulmonary vasodilators. I hope they come with a clinic list. I should say that our patients, we give them a clinic letter that will incorporate their diagnosis and their medication list. And many of them wear MediAlert bracelets as well. And they often have their pulmonary vasodilators written on their MediAlert. I think probably more it's moving for when they go from the ED into a non-specialist ward is making sure that they continue their pulmonary vasodilators. This is like sildenafil, for example. People might not understand that they're taking it to reduce their pulmonary pressures. And if we get a sudden stopping in this specialist medication, we can end up with too much right to left shunting and again, circulatory collapse. So it's really important once you've stabilized your patient that when they move move on to peripheral wards, that their normal medication is understood and continued. I can picture the scene now where a male patient comes in and he's told he's not going to need his sildenafil while he's in hospital, A with a wink and a nudge. And actually, the truth is, without it, he's in real trouble. (laughs) He's in real trouble. Keep going with those blue pills. Absolutely. It's a a three times a day regime on on sildenafil for pulmonary hypertension. Different to to other uses, I'm sure. Now, let's (laughs) move on to uh, other anatomy. Very briefly, let's just quickly cover the transposition of the great arteries, which always sounds like some sort of Greek tragedy to me. What do we need to know about these patients? So we've covered the Eisenmenger. They've got a shunt. Transposition. Now, they must have had an operation in order to survive to adulthood. Okay, so here we go. I'm going to try and make a very complex lesion simple in few seconds. Transposition of great arteries. So if we call it simple transposition, yes, to sustain life, these have had an operation. Now, in the 1980s, we changed our operation. So let's just concentrate on what it means. So at birth, 
transposition of the great arteries. Transposition, if you think about it, just means vessels being in parallel but swapped. So we're talking about a pulmonary artery and an aorta that have swapped positions. You have a pulmonary artery coming off a morphological left ventricle and you have an aorta coming off a morphological right ventricle. So what that means is that you have two separate circulations here. Follow blood coming in through the pulmonary veins into your left atrium, follows through into your left ventricle, and then goes out into your pulmonary arteries. That goes through your lung bed, and comes back in through your pulmonary veins to your left atrium. Now, if you go on the other side, you've got a right atrium coming down into your right ventricle, going out into your aorta, through your systemic circulation, back into your IVC and SVC, to your right atrium. And again, you've got a separate circulation. So these patients are often diagnosed in utero now, but they have to, to sustain life, they have to have a patent ductus arteriosus and they have to have an atrial septal communication. So these guys are now being diagnosed in utero, but they may not have been previously. So you're following that so far. So yeah, I've got this. So instead <laughs> of having a one single circulation that's mixing and combining and doing the pumping to the body and the pumping to the lungs, we've got one circulation on one side, one on the other. They're not chatting to each other. That's really bad. And in this case, we have to have some form of shunt to get these patients through the first days of life. Otherwise, they simply don't oxygenate blood and it's going around in two separate circulations. Absolutely, which is not sustainable in life, is it? So we know this. PDA has to be kept open and atrial septum has to be open. So that's where people have emergency balloon septostomies in life. So that's where we open up the atrial septum. So the and that's group- happening at birth. And that happens at birth if it's a restrictive atrial septum. So if it's a small hole, not allowing enough mixing. The patients that we have that are now in their 30s, because we stopped doing this procedure around the 1980s, is an atrial switch. An atrial switch procedure also is called a mustard and senning procedure from the surgeons who first described it. It's rerouting through baffles, which essentially is either atrial tissue or pericardium, taking blood flow back to the appropriate circulation through the atria. What I mean by that is if you think of blood coming through the pulmonary venous return into the left atrium, it's then guided through into the right ventricle, which connects to the aorta and back to the systemic circulation. It then comes back in through the IVC and SVC to the right atrium, but it's guided through these baffles to the left ventricle, and then it takes it out to the pulmonary arteries. So you've re-established your normal two-circulation flow through pulmonary and arterial systems, but the way in which you're doing it is you're crossing over the atrial flow, you're switching them, and it's also reliant on the right ventricle, the morphological right ventricle, being your systemic ventricle. So this is why they're so fragile. This group of patients is reliant on a ventricle that was formed to sustain a passive low pressure circulation. However, we're now asking it to sustain a high pressure systemic circulation. So heart failure and arrhythmias are really common presentations in ED for this group of patients who are currently in their 30s. So this is where it's really important to stop thinking about left and right ventricles and talk about systemic and pulmonary ventricles, if you like, because what we've really done is we've asked the right ventricle to stump up do something it was never thought it was going to do, try and supply the rest of the body with the oxygenated blood while the left ventricle, which 
when it was born, it was expecting a relatively hard time and it's now just cruising on a passive size of the circulation. But that is not the way they were supposed to be doing this. This was amazing surgery when it was being performed and it was allowing the patients to survive into adulthood. But we soon realised that the morphological right ventricle, which becomes a systemic ventricle, does suffer the consequence of that. And it's just not designed to sustain that circulation. And the other thing that's important is, of course, we have so many randomised controlled trials about amazing heart failure medication all on a morphological left ventricle. And we just don't know, we don't have the numbers to say that our ACE inhibitors, you know, our spironolactone, et cetera, work on a morphological right ventricle. This patient comes into the emergency department and we've ascertained that they've had a transposition soon after birth and they've had that operative procedure, but they're short of breath. They've got crackles up to their mid zones. They've got low saturations. And they're in what we would normally see as crashing left ventricular failure. Obviously, it's not left ventricle. Don't worry, Sam. I'm listening to what you've said. What do we do to treat these patients? We've done the ABC. So think about respiratory rate. If it's fast, it's bad. Give them some oxygen. Where to next? Normally, we'd be thinking about GTN infusions and fruzamide. Which of these can we actually use in these patients? Both do it. Do your normal heart failure treatment when you first get there. Fruzamide is one drug that doesn't come with the big randomized controlled trials, but we all know it works. Actually, this patient group will do well with fruzamide. You need to offload them. So absolutely, you will cause no harm if this patient comes to you in pulmonary edema, in heart failure, and they need immediate help. So absolutely, your intravenous fruzamide, please use it. You can use it in this group without any detriment or any concern. In fact, without using it, you will cause more harm. If you want to use your GTN that you use in ED, please do. But the fruzamide is first line, please. That's what I'd be using. The others that people might reach for, as we've already said, with the ACE inhibitors and the angiotensin receptor blockers, maybe not such an acute ED drug that you might be reaching for, something we might think about further down the line. We don't have the data behind it in large studies, but actually when your only option in these patients is to get them on optimised medical care, because of course for this group, where are we heading if their ventricles fail? Transplantation with an you know organ shortage, we have to give them the best chance that they can have. So for you in ED, absolutely treat them as a heart failure patient. Please treat them with fruzamide. Is there any place for non-invasive ventilation? You can use non-invasive ventilation in this group, no problem at all. If you think about this group, they've got a left ventricle that's a subpulmonary ventricle. So actually, if you put the pulmonary pressures up, that ventricle will be fine. It's very muscular and it was ready to sustain a higher pressure circulation. So you can treat them with non-invasive ventilation and fruzamide if needed. So this is one group of adult congenital heart disease patients where putting the pressures up in the pulmonary circulation, pulmonary and in the pulmonary system are not going to cause problems. Whereas clearly from what we were saying in episode one, sticking a patient with a Fontan on non-invasive ventilation is a bad idea. Fontan patients would not do well with high pressures in their pulmonary circulation. There would be no forward flow. You see, I'm listening. You were doing great. (laughs) Thank you. Now, you mentioned arrhythmias for the transposition. They may obviously come in with both. You could have an arrhythmia that is causing your heart failure. And probably then, I guess we want to start by treating the arrhythmia first. Are these like the Fontan patients we talked about in episode one, where electrical cardioversion is the only option? Or are there other medical treatments that we could try first? I would treat them with caution, much like the Fontan circulation. The right ventricle does not have the same resilience as the left ventricle. We know 
know that. So again, if you see a patient that looks young, they've put an ECG under your nose when you're in ED and they've said, look, they're in an atrial arrhythmia. Don't sit them behind a curtain or closed door and say, it's fine. I'll deal with them later. They're young. They'll do well. The right ventricle will not sustain arrhythmias for a, a long period of time. Maybe not quite such the urgency as the Fontan. They might be able to wait overnight, but they are at risk of going into heart failure. So if you have them in both, an arrhythmia and heart failure, you can get the frusamide going and correct any electrolyte abnormalities. And if they're on warfarin, then check the INR. The main thing is they will do better in early restoration of sinus rhythm for this group. The difficulty with this group is that they have a lot of scar tissue through having these baffles formed in their atrium. So they're at risk of atrial arrhythmias, but they are also at risk of having an AV block. So beta blockers have to be used with caution. And I think, to be honest, if there's any compromise, then we're looking towards electrical cardioversion. If there's any deterioration echocardiographically, even if they look to be doing well, if there's echocardiographic deterioration for us when they make it up to the peripheral wards or the cardiac wards, it's electrical cardioversion. This is a group, again, picking up the phone, discussing with the cardiologist and discussing with the specialist centres. We don't like leaving these patients long term or, you know, days in arrhythmias. They need the AV synchrony. So transposition, ABCs, as always, pay attention to those clinical physical signs, treat heart failure as you normally would, and arrhythmias, don't dive in with medication because who quite knows what's going on with the scar tissue. They're going to need cardioversion, perhaps not as urgently as the Fontan patient, but they need discussion with their specialist centre and you need to then think about how you're going to manage that cardioversion further down the line. Does that seem like a transposition summary that we can take forward? That sounds great. I think the, the medication will be available, but I think it needs discussion with a specialist centre first. They may have tried some of these before with evidence of block and pauses and you don't need that in your ED. And of course just for fun let's go back to the point where they're being born these patients. These are the ones who can present I presume in cardiac embarrassment at sort of 10 days as their PDA starts to close and they're the ones we have to give the prostaglandins to. Is this that group of patients? You're spot on yeah they get the prostaglandins early on in life and then they if their atrial septum is very small in restricted communication then these are the ones going for the emergency uh, balloon septostomy so tearing open that atrial septum with the balloon to allow adequate mixing of uh, systemic and pulmonary circulation. So this is the one emergency that my paediatric interventionist will be called for overnight. It's all starting to make sense, Sam, sort of. So easy. Isn't it? Isn't it? Now, finally, let's move even further back in the circulation. We've pretty much nailed the heart, I reckon. <laughs> We've sort of done the base of the aorta and the vena. That's all sorted. The final one we want to talk about is the aortic coarctation. Now, this was that mystery condition at medical school where somehow if I felt different pulses, I was going to diagnose it and, and be a clinical expert. Really, what's the reality of this? How would a patient with aortic coarctation end up in the emergency department? Two ways, I suppose. They might present before repair or they might present after repair. I think if we remember what coarctation is, which for you guys now will be easy peasy if you've just dealt with the other lesion. Coarctation is quite simply a narrowing or a nipping in the aorta after the left subclavian artery, which causes a reduction in blood flow to the descending aorta. And it's thought, and if you look at it um, on anatomical specimens, it's thought to be where the ductus arteriosus used to insert, and it's a fibrous band. They might present to you in ED before repair, 
and we've had a number of patients that come and they could present in a number of ways. It could be young people with persistent hypertension. It could be young people with abdominal discomfort for reduction in blood flow or um, intermittent claudication. However, I think you're more likely to see a post-repair patient coming into ED. And I think this is where it's really important. There was a misconception somewhere along the adult congenital care of patients in the population. I don't know where it came from that a repair is corrected and discharged, which is not true. These patients have other comorbidities that require long-term follow-up. A repaired coarctation is not a discharged coarctation patient. These patients have an aortopathy. They're at risk of persistent hypertension despite not having a coarctation if it's been removed and the two ends of the aorta have been brought back together with an end-to-end repair. They might have a bicuspid aortic valve, which would cause them problems in life, potentially becoming stenosed or regurgitant. And there is a 10% link with aneurysms. I have to say we've stopped scanning to look for aneurysms without symptoms. But if they came to you with a headache or new neurology and they had a coarctation, then please bear that in mind. But I think the important thing for this group is that actually, even though they may have had a surgical procedure previously in the past, such as I say, an end-to-end anastomosis, which is cutting out the portion of the coarctation that was narrowed, bringing the two ends of the aorta back together, or they had a patch over that area of narrowing, or a jump graft, which is just like a bypass graft from the ascending to the descending aorta, jumping over the coarctation. At any point in their follow-up, that area of coarctation can re-narrow, and those surgical scars can also form aneurysms. So they're not out of the woods. So we do follow them up. We've also started in adult life stenting the aorta as first line. And also those stents can re to nose, so they can represent with re-coarctation and might require ballooning. And we also look out for any dilatation or aneurysm formation. Yes, they've been repaired, but these patients may need ongoing surveillance for looking for aneurysms or re and hypertension. Dare I say that after everything we've talked about, the coarctation feels a little more straightforward. I never thought I would say that. <laughs> but I think the take-home message from you is that this is not a done deal once they're repaired and they can do funny stuff. Keep an eye out for berry aneurysms with which there's a genetic type link. As far as it goes, are there any other, a bit like when we had with the Fontan, that presentation of hemoptysis, are there, is there funny stuff that patients with coarctation or repaired coarctations can get that that we need to take more seriously than we might perhaps in patients without the coarctation? The hemoptysis is the big one. In these patients' groups, if we maybe have, they've been lost to follow up, they thought that they were repaired and they formed an aneurysm formation, a herald bleed, the smallest of bleeds. And as I've spoken to you before, we've had patients with a 50 pence or 10 pence or 5 pence clot cough. This was a herald bleed that had sealed itself off through a berry aneurysm formation at the anastomosis suture site of the jump graft. Now, this next bleed could have been catastrophic and fatal. So actually, these guys that present with hemoptysis run the risk of having aneurysm formation that has now ruptured and sealed off. And it was a herald bleed. CTing these guys absolutely would be the next thing for us with contrast to see if that's the proven diagnosis. And then we would take them on to have a look whether they need more intervention to seal off the aneurysm or surgery. But absolutely, please don't send them home if they've had hemoptysis. Check them for a suture line aneurysm and you can't go wrong. So Sam, how does the blood get from that 
aorta into the lungs for you to cough it up? That's a really good question. So the one that we looked on CT was that um, there had almost been like a fistula formation because it was an aneurysm that had developed over time. So it was a jump graft from a suture line and that would have expanded ever so slowly over time. My surgeons tell me that when you look at these aneurysms, they're such thin walled. And remember, this is a highly high pressure vascular structure, isn't it? It's the aorta, but they're really thin walled. So I think it's a fistula formation that happens over time. So take any bleeding in hemoptysis seriously because obviously they could dump their entire blood volume into their lungs relatively quickly it's not a nice way is it no no so sam over these two episodes we've covered i think in some detail but hopefully in a way that we can all understand these most common presentations of congenital heart disease in adults Before we just summarise all of that, I just wanted to ask a little bit about what about the patient who comes in with other stuff? I'm thinking particularly major trauma or major bleeding. Is there anything else we need to do differently for any of these particular conditions? Because these are, we say, young people, they're going to go out, they're going to drive cars, they could be in car crash, pre-hospitally or in the ED. Can we just ignore the congenital heart disease aspect and treat them as normal at the beginning? I think stick to your normal protocol that you guys know inside out for your trauma calls and for your resus. Yes, ABC, treat them normally. The big things to know are just because they're young, don't think that they will tolerate hemodynamic change for long or at all. So these guys do well. Complex lesions will deteriorate early. But yes, please do your ABCs. Big take home message, call the specialist centres early and they'll help you. And I guess in those patients, especially with the Fontan circulation, don't dive into RSI them on the roadside because that could be a real issue. Yes. Yes, I won't be doing that. Sam, it's been absolutely fabulous these two episodes to cover all this. I certainly feel like I have more understanding of what's going on. Let's just give a summary of the different things we've talked about, if you could. Now, I think that what we're really saying is, Do what we do normally and do it well, but be aware of a few different things. If you can, just give us for each of these things, the three things you want us to remember, quick fire, just in case people only listen, why would they, to the end of this podcast. So a Fontan circulation, what three things do we need to remember? Univentricular circulation, they have one pumping function for the systemic circulation. They need sinus rhythm for preservation. Electrical cardioversion, contact your specialist centres early. Okay, I'm going to take that one and two were one there because otherwise you went to four, but I'm going to let you because you've been so generous with your time. Uh, So that's Fontan's, Eisenmenger. What are the three things we need to remember for those? They're the shunting and mixing of blood, aren't they? Absolutely. Cyanosed by definition. Anything in their venous system will go into their systemic circulation. So anything you're putting through a cannula will be in the systemic circulation. Any change in neurology, please think cerebral abscess. Simple procedures, I'm doing four again, simple procedures can be life-threatening. Okay, and just to prevent any confusion, what four things would you ask people (laughs) to remember for transposition of the great arteries? (laughs) The systemic ventricle is a right ventricle. It will fail. They are young, but they are fragile. Sinus rhythm. There we are. That's four. And finally, coarctation. (laughs) Repaired, but needs lifelong follow-up, not fixed. Hemoptysis can mean herald life-threatening bleed, low threshold, CT chest, discuss with specialist centre. 
Sam, it's been absolutely fabulous, these two episodes. I'm so grateful to you for taking so much time to talk us through it. Hopefully, we've given all of our listeners a little bit more information so that when these patients present, that we will have the right approach and know how to care for them in the best way possible. But mainly, we'll be able to take control and not be frightened ourselves. I'm so grateful to you. I know that you're also an expert in maternal cardiology. So I'm very much hoping to persuade you to come back and talk to us a bit about that too. But I can't thank you enough for for the time you spent with us today. There will be an accompanying blog post. And of course, do look at Simon's other blog post, which goes into some of these conditions in detail. And I'm sure if you've any further questions, just pop them in the comments box on that blog or contact St. Emily's via Twitter. And I'm sure I can get them to Sam and she'll be able to answer them for us. Thank you so much for spending so much time with us today. It's been my pleasure and good luck. You guys do an amazing job.